Our message today comes from the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Hear these words. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before the child knows the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as we have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So how should we read the Bible? What does it really mean? So last week, Pastor Josh's sermon highlighted how we read the Bible. Josh mentioned that we read the Bible in a different way than we read the grocery list or the text from our spouse, or I hope you read the Bible much differently than the way you read your tax return. Josh highlighted for us that meaning for a passage has three ingredients. What did the author intend? What does the passage say literally? And who is reading that passage? So I want you to think about that process of author's intent and the text itself and us, the reader. And Josh also discussed the text Isaiah 7, 10 to 17. I, I promise it's not a mistake that it's listed here as our scripture for today. Because we wanted to drill down on this particular passage. And I'm sure you remember from last week that uh, this text functions as a prophetic moment for King Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah. King Ahaz had been losing some sleep. He was worried about some local neighbors that might cause some problems for him. And so he was considering reaching out to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were kind of that global power in the neighborhood. But the prophet Isaiah was frustrated. The prophet Isaiah was frustrated in thinking, I'm so sorry, I got distracted. The prophet Isaiah was so frustrated because King Ahaz could not trust that God was with him. So uh, God, offers, uh, to, uh, uh, God offers to King Ahaz, would you like to see a sign? Uh, this is the modern way of saying, um, you doubt me? <laughs> I'll show you. Um, and King Ahaz, being polite, if not faithful, knows not to put God to the test and says, no, thank you. The prophet Isaiah goes ahead and gives him a sign, though. He says that the sign will be this, that a young woman would bear a child, and by the time that child could tell right from wrong and was eating curds and honey, the neighbors for whom King Ahaz was afraid and losing sleep about 
would no longer be a concern for him. Well, that's great for King Ahaz. What in the world does this mean for us? What does Isaiah 7 say to believers in Lake Jackson, Texas? What does it have to say to Christians here in 2021? Well, let's be honest. For that matter, what does any of the Old Testament have to say about our lives? How do you make sense of ancient words for an ancient people at a particularly ancient time? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work, because I definitely believe there is a way to read Scripture to find meaning for our lives. I want you to take, for example, uh, this idea of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, um, which came around every 50th year, was a year full of celebration and rest. During this year, the Israelites were not supposed to reap or harvest, but rather it was a time for the people to return to their families and to their loved ones. You can find this discussed in Leviticus chapter 25. Now, it was also a time, uh, Jake's going to advance the slide here, uh, for forgiveness, which happened through releasing people from their debts. All financially indebted slaves were set free, and lands that were lost due to debt foreclosure were returned to their original owners. Now, I, I don't know about you, that's a pretty darn good piece of scripture right there. I think every 50 years, we should be biblically appropriate, and we should forgive, I don't know, student loan debts, uh, or uh, maybe credit card debt, but that's kind of on you. Um, I, you know, what would it be like for those ancestral lands to return to their owners? I mean, whew, I'm getting the uh, spiritual heebie-jeebies right now. I'm thinking we need to write our congressman, congressperson, our legislators, and see if we can't become more biblical. But let's think back to that idea of how meaning is made in Scripture. But let's first think about the author's intent. What was God really trying to do here uh, in Leviticus? Uh, what is this particular passage trying to communicate? Well, it's really, um, it, it's like a piece of law, right? Leviticus tells the story and the context of the laws that God has put forth for the people of Israel. But in the midst of that, God wants this law to teach the Israelites about the power of forgiveness and to rely upon God for grace. As farmers, the Israelites knew how over the course of time, the harvest can create life, but that a drought or a famine could also take away life. And that over the course of time, there are winners and losers, haves and haves nots. So God's law is to try to help reset everything Every 50 years, we'll set everything straight. We'll take a year of rest, and we'll remember that who we are as God's people is bound up in God's covenantal love, God's hesed. So having thought about author's intent, we're reading a passage of law. Let's think about the text itself. When, when you read that text, what do you think it meant to the people who wrote it? What do you think forgiveness of debts meant 
to the people who heard it read aloud. What do you think it would mean to you to hear and understand that um, there is a way out of some of the debt and expectations and overwhelming aspects of our economy? Now, set the text aside just for a moment. I have one last piece of that puzzle to give to you. But for now, I want you to think, what is it like for you to read that text? To become aware that the God that you serve is so interested in forgiveness and freedom that God's willing to find a way for society to forgive us of our debts. That's a powerful piece of information. Uh, we read scripture from where we are socially located, is what the academics say. But if you are um, stuck under mounting debt, if you are concerned about um, how to send your kid to college, if you are worried about what's in the 401k, you read that passage differently than somebody who is not experiencing those circumstances. Now for that last piece of the puzzle, that pretty powerful text, that particular idea that if you um, uh, thought that we should become more and more of a Christian nation, a people of the book, then why haven't we put this law into uh, action in our community? Well, here's the problem. The problem is, is that there is no historical or biblical record that the people of Israel ever celebrated the Jubilee. Isn't that challenging? Does that lower the um, authority of that particular law for us here um, so many centuries later? Does it influence the meaning of the passage for you and the application for us as a community? It sounds wonderful, but could it be that it is too much pie in the sky? Too much forgiveness in one moment? Do you see how the meaning is a matter of what the author intended, what the text says itself, and our response to it? Let's look a little bit closer at the ingredients of meaning. The author's intent. Some of you who follow politics remember hearing about Amy Coney Bryant, uh, who uh, is the most recent addition to the Supreme Court. Um, her um, interviews that were televised were a fascinating discussion about constitutional law and how we interpret texts. Um, she talked about being an originalist, right? So originalists are this idea of getting an idea of what did the passage mean to the writer? What did the passage mean to the people who heard it read? Um, as an originalist, um, she seeks to understand the mindset of the original framers of the Constitution. There are others uh, who interpret the Constitution by textualism. This idea of what do the words separate uh, mean in the particular context? What does it mean to talk about a militia? What does it mean to talk about freedom? And who is, uh, who is able to receive that idea of freedom? There are others who think about the Constitution in terms of precedence or structuralism or even through values. But you get the idea here in terms of author's intent. You can also talk about authorial intent by using simple ideas around inflection. I could write the words, I love you, but how I intone them gives, gives them meaning. 
like out of frustration that my uh, sweet little dog finally decided to come to my call and come back in in the middle of rain and mud. I love you. Or the way um, uh, two lovers might say the same words uh, in pillow talk as they go to bed at night. I love you. Or the sarcasm that might come uh, when your kid returns the keys of the car, but there's some dings in the bumper. I love you. Inflection and intonation can sometimes communicate to us the intent that the speaker is speaking. Much like a text message, the Bible sometimes needs that opportunity to hear the inflection and the author's intent. When we look at the third aspect or ingredient of meaning, we look at the text. Um, the text, sometimes in our discussions, has to mean about, is it factual, right? I hear oftentimes when teaching the Bible or studying scripture, well, did this really happen? <laughs> what a great question. Um, you know, those questions around, uh, do we have archeological proof that this happened? Is it historical? Did somebody write it down so that we can have um, external credibility and corroboration. I think it's interesting when we ask God, uh, in the midst of telling the story of salvation history, um, do, do you, did you quote your sources? Did you cite some works so that we know that it's true? I have to say that a couple of years ago, when they found an ossuary box in Jerusalem, a box that was often uh, the place where people would put their bones, think of like a niche in a, uh, for cremains in a cemetery. And on that box, the label that was there, chiseled in stone, was the bones of Jesus the carpenter. And it made the rounds. Um, in terms of media, it was quite the um, interesting spectacle, if you will, only to find out that the box was empty and that the carbon dating on the label saying Jesus uh, Carpenter in Jerusalem didn't match the age of the box itself. You know, how badly do we need to know that things are factual? I also want to say that the other piece around the text and meaning is that we are too quick to say that certain things are metaphor or allegory or just poetic or philosophical. I find it interesting that when Jesus tells us to do things in the gospel, if they are easy, then he means it literally. And if the things Jesus tells us to do are hard, well, clearly he only meant that metaphorically. What does the text tell us about the meeting? And then last, the third ingredient to meaning is the reader. Um, this sometimes is referred to as the reader response by academics. The reader is us. I shouldn't really have to give you a tour of uh, us. Um, Jake's gonna uh, advance the slide here to the reader. But it's really, what do you bring to the text? Who are you? Um, how do you read the words of the text? What is happening in the world around you as you are reading that text? You know, it's obvious in our politically divided uh, culture uh, that a conservative reading parts of the Constitution 
are understood differently than a liberal reading the Constitution, that the reader brings meaning, but that meaning cannot overwhelm the evidence of the text or the author's intent. But it should bring something to the interpretation of the text. For example, our particular passage, you know, um, it, it has a piece of the text to it, right? When we read it, we know that this uh, factually, historically happened, that it was King Ahaz who had problems, border disputes with his neighbors, that King Ahaz decided not to be faithful. Ahaz is known as one of the faithless, most faithless uh, kings over Israel. And in the midst of all of that, these were the beginning actions by the people of Israel that resulted in God allowing them to be carried off into captivity. So much of what it means to be the people of Israel is tied to the land. And because of King Ahaz's uh, lack of faithfulness, uh, the people lost the land. When you read the text together, we can say that there really was a, a young woman, that there really was a child, that by the time the child was able to tell right and wrong, the border disputes were gone, and that, God, uh, that the woman did name the child Emmanuel. But that was how many hundreds of years ago? What in the world does that mean to us here in Lake Jackson? I want to say that this particular prophetic message, Isaiah considers this to be a sign. And a sign is a visible gesture where God's nature is made concrete and inescapable. It's true for King Ahaz. As soon as that child showed up on the scene named Emmanuel, King Ahaz could not escape the fact that God had said so many years ago, I am with you. I will protect you. I will make sure that you're provided for. And that child continued to be a reminder to King Ahaz, who doubted God's provision, who didn't trust God, but instead trusted the Assyrians. The king of Assyria was no stranger to the people of Israel. He had attacked Jerusalem before and would do it again. The king of Assyria and his kingdom were world powers, and King Ahaz wanted to have power on his side. So let's interpret. The author's intent was to tell a story of prophetic action, to tell a story of faith and fear. As well, Isaiah's intent was to tell a story of what it means to trust God and what that visible gesture will say about God and how it will become concrete and inescapable. Let's look at the text of Isaiah 7. Certainly it meant something specifically to King Ahaz and to the Assyrians. It was a real occurrence. There's no allegorical device here or poetic depiction of reality. It really happened. Now let's look at us, the reader. As we read the passage, we bring our own hopes and fears to the text. We can read the story from our own particular zip code as some of the most wealthiest, most educated folks in the world. We can factor out our faith just like King Ahaz did, or we can listen for the sign, the sign of a child 
that makes the love and provision of God a concrete and inescapable reality for us. What does it mean to know that God is with us? How do you become aware of God's presence? How do you nurture that awareness so that it makes a difference in your actions? King Ahaz was unable to overcome his fear and trust in faith. In fact, uh, um, he was so unable to overcome his fear that he made a deal with an enemy king. Will we be able to overcome our fear? Not of our local neighbors who may have a border dispute on our property, but our fear of a pandemic that has taken our lives, has taken our social activities, for some our income and our jobs, and for others our sense of control and well-being. To quote a different section of the Bible, if God is for us, who can be against us? The interpretation of Isaiah 7 speaks to us. It warns us. It causes us to wonder. It is a historical moment that has theological implications. I wonder how you're being changed and transformed by the reading of Scripture. I appreciated Pastor Josh's comments last week. Um, The first of his five tips, if you remember them, was read it. No, really. (laughs) Open the book. Read the words. It's a beginning. We read the Bible for more than just facts and information. We read the Bible for more than just comparing it to the archaeological record. We read it for more than just insights into literature and how to understand the world around us. We read it to be changed. It's more than a grocery list. It's more than our tax return. The scriptures are, as another part of the Bible says, God breathed and contain everything we need sufficient for our salvation. Friends, the power of the Bible is that when we read it, it also reads us. And if we allow, we can be changed, maybe even transformed. So when you read scripture, please know that our salvation is not a matter of archeological proof. It's not locked up behind what the words meant just to Isaiah. Our salvation is bound up with this God who gives us clear signs, visible gestures of a concrete and inescapable reality that God is indeed with us. What does the text mean to you? I don't know. I think I've discovered what it means to me. I wonder, as you read the text, think together about its meaning and that meaning should change us for the better. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.